If you have your Bibles, you can open with me to Philippians chapter 1. We're in Philippians chapter 1, and this is a series of messages. If you're new here or this is your first time with us, we are going through as a church a a church-wide Bible reading plan. And we're reading together through God's Word from the book of Acts, which is in the New Testament, all the way to the book of Revelation. And we're reading together every day on the reading plan. It's called New in 42. And the reason it's called that is because in 42 days of reading, we will learn the story of the church that changed the world. You see, all the way back 2,000 years ago, when Jesus walked this earth, he brought with him and called to himself a group of followers, which became known as his disciples. Those disciples went where he went. They saw what he did. They stood with him in ministry. They eventually saw him die on the cross and then raised from the dead after three days. And through that small band of disciples, Jesus made a promise that he would build his church on their trust and faith in him. And the gates of hell would never be able to overcome that church. It would be an unstoppable church. It would be the church that changed the world forever. And Jesus made that promise. And we see, starting in the book of Acts, how that promise becomes a reality. And the world is changed through this group of believers that stand and proclaim their faith in Jesus, are empowered by the Holy Spirit, and the world around them was turned upside down. We see signs, we see wonders, we see miracles. We see amazing things happen when we read that story. And as we read that story, church, and we know that Jesus is alive and the Holy Spirit is living and active among us, that there's no reason why the church that we read about in the book of Acts can't be the church of today. Amen? And so we long to be that church. We long to be those people, the church that changed the world. We pray, God, would you renew that vision and make it alive in our hearts, make it a reality among us today. And so for that to happen, first we need to know the story. So we've been understanding the story. And then out of the story, there come attributes or characteristics of the church that changed the world. There are things that they committed themselves to that we need to learn from today. There are lessons that they learned that we must learn so that we can become that church that changed the world. So each week we are taking from the reading, as we're reading through the story, and we are pulling out one principle, one characteristic, one attribute of the church that changed the world, what made them who they were, so that we can understand who God's called us to be in this day. So started all the way back in our very first week, right after Easter, we talked about the empowered church and the connected church and all of these attributes in between. Last week we talked about the evangel church, which is not the church on Terrell Road, but the Evangel Church is a church wholly sold out to proclaiming the good news of Jesus. We long to be that church. And I pray God's given you opportunities this week to share the love of Jesus and the good news of the gospel with someone else. Well, this week we're going to learn another story and another piece of that attribute of the church that changed the world. To understand this attribute, we need to understand a little bit of the history of what's happening in your reading right now. In your reading, we have been walking through and what started as a small group of followers that met together in an upper room on the day of Pentecost soon turned into a group of 3,000, then turned into a group of over 5,000, a group of people that put their faith in Jesus. This is what the early church was. They met together in one another's homes. They broke bread together. They enjoyed fellowship together. And it says that the Lord added to their number daily those that were being saved. They boldly proclaimed who Jesus was. They saw miracles happen in their midst. They gave generously so that no one among them had need. And as they continued to go, they continued to grow. And as the gospel continued to go out, lives were being changed. It started to make people 
un- uncomfortable. So they started to see resistance. Eventually, people started to lose their life for their faith in Jesus. And then over a period of time, they were still successful to go out just as Jesus promised to the ends of the earth with the gospel. Sometimes they were met with persecution. Other times they were met with a welcoming arm and people, many people came to know Jesus. But eventually, as the Roman Empire became more and more aware of what was going on, as the Jewish leaders became more and more aware, they, they needed to put an end to this small group of Christians, these little Christs that are spreading like wildfire all around the known world. Well, they had already tried to stop their leader by killing him and nailing him to a cross. That didn't work out too well for them. He rose from the dead. So what's the next way for them to come against this small group of believers that's now rapidly growing to take out their leader? Just as it says in God's word, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. So their goal then began to target leaders in the church. And we see even as early as Acts chapter 8 that one of the leaders in the church, Stephen, he was stoned to death for his faith in Jesus. He was killed right at the hands of the leaders and the religious authorities. Among them was a man named Saul of Tarsus who was holding the jackets for those that were killing uh, the leaders of the church. And this man was one of those people that you may know them when they're in, they're all in. They are headstrong and they're all in and you cannot stop them. That's Saul's switch. He only had one gear and it was all in, passionate. And so when he was all in against Christianity, he was all in. Eventually he took it into his own hands. He went to go and find Christians himself. He was breathing out murderous threats against them, it says in God's word. But something happened that changed everything. And you know it, what happened because it happened to you. That's why many of us are here today. He had a revelation of Jesus Christ. He met the risen Savior. His life was radically transformed. And this man that was such a force to oppose believers in Jesus flipped 180 and became one of the greatest forces to spread the gospel that we have in our entire history as believers in Jesus. This man named Paul, who used to be known as Saul, if the people that opposed Christianity were making a most wanted list of people that they needed to take out, that they needed to control, that they needed to stop, Paul would be at the top of that list. He would be number one on their most wanted list. And so as he went from place to place, he found himself escaping at times by the skin of his teeth, by the grace of God. God was preserving his life. But as he reached the end of his third journey, He was going around. He knew the Holy Spirit impressed in his heart that the next journey he would go on, he would not return from. He knew that he he only had his faith in Jesus, but hardship, trials, and difficulties were awaiting him at every turn. Paul was on his way to Rome. He was on his way to Jerusalem and to Rome. He was on his way to lay down his life for his faith. He said to a group of Ephesian elders that the only thing that matters to me is not what I'm going to face, but that I finish the race that Jesus has set me on, that I serve the purpose for why he has placed me on this earth. And I tell you what, that should be all of our prayer. That should be all of our number one desire is to find out why God has placed us on this earth, why he has a purpose for us, what that is, and that we would follow it to the end of our days. So this man, Paul, he is on a journey. And as he's on a journey, he does end up imprisoned. And as he's in prison, as he's in Rome, as he's there being held by the authorities, you could imagine that it could feel like loss. You could imagine he would become depressed. You could imagine all these things would overcome him. But from that prison cell, 
he begins to send out letters. And these letters, if I was in prison for my faith, you know where my letters would be going to? My lawyer, to the religious leaders, to the mayor, to anyone that would listen. I would be sending letters to everyone. I would be trying to plead my innocence. I would try to tell them that God had me here and I was doing what he wanted me to do. But Paul's letters weren't that way. Eventually, after time passed, my letters would turn bitter probably. I'd be frustrated maybe. That's what I could imagine for someone imprisoned. And what they would see as wrongfully. But his letters were different. Instead of writing to anyone else, any religious leader, anyone else, he decides that he would write to churches that had started just a, previ- a brief time earlier. He would write to believers in Jesus in places that he had visited. And he, from his prison cell, carried a burden for them, just like a mother would for her children. In fact, as he wrote one of his letters earlier in Galatians, this isn't when he's in prison, he says, you know what, I, I'm feeling the birth pangs until Christ is formed in you. I am feeling, again, all of the turmoil of what it means that a mother goes through when they are bringing a child into this world. I feel that for you until Christ is formed. Until Jesus Christ can be made fully known in you and through you. So that's what he is dealing with, and that's the love he has for the church and for believers in Jesus. And as the Apostle Paul is living out his faith from behind bars, he writes what are known as the prison epistles. These prison epistles were letters sent to various churches, groups of believers, to help them along in their faith in Jesus, to give them essential things that they would need to know. And so this week, as you've been reading, you've been reading the prison epistles. You've been reading these letters that were sent by the Apostle Paul to different believers in different areas all around the known world at the time. He's encouraging them. And we learn a lesson here about something so vitally important. It's one of the attributes of the church that changed the world. It's what allowed for his letters to be full of joy. It's what allowed him to rejoice. It's what allowed him to have the perspective that he had at that time when the days were growing darker and the situation seemed more bleak by the moment. He had something that he possessed, that he took hold of, an attribute that he carried with him in his life. And it's something that Jesus said would happen. He said a time was coming and, would, and it was now arriving where this would happen. And I want to point you all the way back to John chapter 4 before we get into Philippians here. And Jesus is standing at a well with a woman who's a Samaritan woman. And the reason why that's important is because Jesus and the Jewish people, and he represented a Jewish rabbi, so she saw him as a Jewish man. And Samaritans, they had a lot of differences. One of the main differences that they had was where they worshipped. And they believed that if you were going to worship God, if you were going to have this right relationship with him, if you were really going to do what was right by God's eyes, it had everything to do with where you worshipped. And so she says to him, when she is questioning him, well, you know, you guys say we need to worship in Jerusalem, but we say we worship on this mountain. Which one is right? Where are we supposed to worship? You think you're so bright. Why don't you tell us where it is that we are to worship? And Jesus said, a time is coming. And it's now when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks are his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus tells her some of the most intimate words on the subject of worship. And here's what he's telling her and here's what we need to realize today. That worship is going to radically change and the church that changed the world 
would worship through their lives. They would live to worship God. The church that changed the world was a church that lived to worship God. What Jesus was pointing forward to in John chapter 4 is something that became a reality in the early church. Because what they were asking the question, what she was really asking is where do we worship? Do we worship here or there? And here's what Jesus says. Worship will no longer be defined by external circumstances and places, but it's going to go deeper and worship will now be defined by not what's on the outside, but what's on the inside. And he said spirit and in truth. That's how true worship will be defined now. Not by being in the right place at the right time, but in your heart, having the right disposition before the Lord. Jesus quoted, whenever he was speaking, he quoted all the way back to the Old Testament. He said, they please me with their lips. They praise me, but their hearts are far from me. What we need to get over today and we need to realize is that we see what's on the outside, but God's word says God judges the heart. And if he's looking for true worshipers, they are those that are worshiping out of the depths of their heart. They're worshiping in a way that is not defined by external circumstances, but by internal transformation. Something that happened deep within us is what changed us and allows us to worship the Lord differently. And so the Apostle Paul, as we even get into this part of his letter, is already revealing because he is writing from behind bars. And the Apostle Paul shows us through all of these letters what it means to live to worship God. And this is a radical difference from what we see in the Old Testament. See, in the Old Testament, it was backwards. It was different. In fact, in the Old Testament, you know how things had become as religion continued to grow and people's hearts were more and more cold to God? People began to worship God to live, not the other way around. Let me show you the distinction between that. To worship God to live means this, that every year at certain points in time, we need to come together, we need to go to this place, we need to go through these motions and rituals, and then we hope and desire and, and are just wishing and, and really hoping, holding out hope for the fact that God will look upon us, he will forgive us, and we will be made right with him. So their worship was all about earning their way back to God. It was about trying to get back to him. So many religions in this world, that's what the goal is, that they are just trying to earn their way back to God, to build the bridge to him. And therefore, they worship, they do everything that they do so that they can attain a certain status before God. And so the Old Testament style of sacrifices, of, of worship in this way, going to a temple, going through all these motions, having a priest that could go between you and God, it was all this way so that we could worship God so that we can live. Something happened when Jesus died on the cross. There was a giant veil that separated the Holy of Holies, the place that only the high priest once a year could go into, and everyone else, that when Jesus died on the cross, you know what happened? A great earthquake shook. The ground began to shake. The veil was torn. And you know what happened in that moment? it showed that God's presence would no longer be confined to a physical address and a physical place in this world. But now, just as God's word says, we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. The spirit of the living God dwells and lives inside of us. And so therefore, if we're going to worship, it isn't going to be by going to a temple or to a church building. It's going to be first starting inside of our hearts 
that worship can really take place that pleases God. And so no longer do we worship God so that we could live. Instead now, because Jesus Christ has built the bridge, has made a way where there is no way, has died for our sins, he's already done the work. So today we come to him not trying to earn our way back to God, but freely receiving the gift of God's son who died for us, the gift of Jesus Christ who forgives us of our sins. So now, now our lives have been changed. Now we have been rescued. Now we have been redeemed. Now we have been saved. And so you know what that changes? It changes us from having to worship God so that we could live to this, living our lives to worship God. That we now live our lives to worship him because he's already made a way. We're not here trying to impress God. We're not here trying to make a way back to him. We're not here hoping that he hears us. Today, we can have confidence in this fact, knowing that Jesus has saved us. And today, we can live to worship him. Paul, the apostle Paul, and the early believers in the church that changed the world, they lived to worship God. Here's what he says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 18. He says, what then? Only... That in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers in the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Let me remind you again, where is Paul at when he's writing this? He's in prison. He's going under incredible hardships and trials and difficulties all around him. And here's what he says, I will rejoice. Yes, I say it again, I will rejoice. Do you know why? Because I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul's saying this, I know that these chains hold me down right now, but in all reality, I'm free. I know today that my life could be coming to a close, but I have nothing to worry about because I have my deliverance. Another word for deliverance there is salvation. I know that this will ultimately turn out for my salvation because of your provision and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He knows, you may think I don't have anything inside of this jail cell, but I have everything because I have Jesus. And there are people that are living all around him, that are walking the streets thinking that they're free, and if they don't have Jesus, they're more a prisoner than he is. The people that are holding him captive are more a prisoner than he is because he has Jesus, and they don't. He knows with certainty this one thing, that God has already done a work, and no matter what happens to him from that moment forward, God is going to work it out for his deliverance. This wasn't him speaking from a beach somewhere. This wasn't Paul speaking as he's sitting on piles of money. He's speaking from a prison cell. And he's saying, I rejoice, and I know that God works all things together for good, and he will work this out for my deliverance. It wasn't because he knew that God was about to open the, the jail cell for him. God wasn't going to send another miracle. He wasn't going to send anything else. Paul was speaking of a deeper deliverance, a deeper salvation than something just physically happening inside of his circumstance. Paul saw something and he held on to something that was deeper than his external circumstance. Here's what he knew, that what God had done in him was greater than what was happening to him and around him. And some of us need to remember that truth and reality, that what Jesus Christ has done in you is greater than what's happening to you. 
Some of you, you face life-threatening uh, diagnosis. You face news that has shattered you. You have things that are going on and storms that you're facing that you feel that you cannot survive. Here's what you need to know today. If Jesus is at the center of your life, what he has done in you is greater than anything that can happen to you. He can save you through it. He can save you from it. He can change you in the midst of it. But nothing is greater than he is. Greater is he that is in me than he is in the world. And the entire world can pass away. But one thing remains, what Jesus Christ has done. Slain since the foundations of the world. The foundations of the world can crumble and our salvation can be held in complete, firm grasp. It can hold like an anchor for our souls. It's firm. It's a hope that is secure that we hold on to. And so we worship Jesus for what he has done in us and we worship him from the depths of our heart, in spirit and in truth. Everything that we are lives to worship him, to magnify him, to lift him high. To worship is really about reflecting the value or worth of God. It's about reflecting the worth or value of God. When we worship him, it's not about going through the motions. It's not about singing the right songs. It's not about playing them in the right key. It's not really about any of that. It's really about a heart that is ascribing worth to God, a heart that is reflecting the value of what God has done in our lives. It's about a whole life lifting that up before the Lord. And if it's not coming from the depths of our heart, it's not really worship. If it isn't coming, if we're just coming in here and we think that as long as we sing along to the words that are on the screen, then everything's going to be great between us and God. You know what you're doing? You're doing nothing more than Christian karaoke. That's all that that is. You're just singing songs on a screen. If it hasn't done anything inside of you, if it's not coming from your heart, if you're praising God with your lips and your heart is far from him, you're not worshiping God. And while anyone else can be impressed by what you're doing and the high, how high you can lift your hands and how loud you can sing out, what God is seeing and looking at is our heart and the condition of our heart before him. That's what he cares most about. And out of that, then our life should change. But it's not about the external first. It's about the internal, then beginning to transform everything around us and about us. Again, worship's all about reflecting the worth or value of God. As we talked about last year in our More Than a Song series, it's ultimately about responding to the revelation of God. As God has done something in you, your heart rejoices. Your heart is held firm in that truth and that reality. And therefore, it flows out of your life as you praise him and as you worship him. So how can we experience worship that expresses how great and glorious God is? How can that happen? It doesn't happen based upon our circumstances. It's bigger than our circumstances. The way that we praise God is ultimately found as we look in verse 20 of Philippians chapter 1. Look what it says. That he will rejoice because he knows that he has his salvation according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything. Part of what would happen to prisoners during this time was that they would be humiliated. They would be ashamed. They would be made to feel like nothing. And I could not imagine how everyone else would be responding in their prison cell. Everyone else might be falling apart and people have no hope. They begin to lose hope. And, and that's part of the breaking process of intimidating and manipulating them. 
And that's some of the things that would happen, especially for those who were seen as enemies to whoever was detaining them. And their goal was just to break them down. And I could imagine the apostle Paul, as they show up to his cell time and again, and he's praising the Lord, and he's rejoicing in Jesus, and they just do anything they can, and he's like, I'm not going to be put to shame because I have a hope that's bigger than you. I have a hope that's greater than these jail cells. I have a hope that's more powerful than anything you could throw at me. And he will not stop praising the Lord. And he says this, with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. There's a point you reach in your relationship with God when you've placed Jesus to the center of your life where the things that are happening around you and the the external things, they just don't matter as much as what he's done inside of you and the work and the transformation that's happened in you. And the more you live to worship him, the more you live to make him known, the more you dwell on what he has done in your life and you take hold of your salvation and walk that out and live out the changed life that he has for you, the more you begin to realize what's most valuable, what's most important, and what Jesus has done for you and in you is greater than anything that could ever happen to you. It's worth more than all the riches of this world could ever purchase, what he has given you as an inheritance, as a child of God. And what Paul is saying is that for every single day, as long as I am living and breathing, Christ will be exalted in my body. Christ will be exalted in my life. And I've had the opportunity and the privilege, although it's been heart-wrenching and sad, to walk alongside of brothers and sisters in the Lord who have walked to the end of their days on earth and when they were facing life-threatening diagnosis and they were given no hope by any doctor and even whenever they themselves, their, their, their feelings were not based on what any doctor would say or even if they lived another week, all they cared about in the end was just praising the Lord and lifting the Lord up. And we had one brother that was among us in our church, and it was a few years back, and, and all he wanted was just to praise the Lord. And on the day he went to be with the Lord, we brought a big group of people from the church over, and we had a worship service. And all he was doing is just praising the Lord, and within a few hours from then, he passed into eternity to praise Jesus for eternity in his presence. It's when we walk through the most difficult storms that the roots of our faith are really tested. We can have the most beautiful, uh, most amazing, immaculate-looking tree in the entire world. It could look pristine. It could look strong. It can look like everything. You know, the only thing that will show what that tree is really worth and what it really has is the storm that it faces. And will the roots go deep enough to hold it when the whole world around it is trying to topple it over? That's the greatest test. And for us, we need to continue to have a faith that runs deep in our heart, the transformation that Jesus has done in us, to hold on to it unswervingly, the hope that we profess in him. And as we do that, our life begins to take on the sweet aroma of worship. It begins to flow out of everything that we are because of what Jesus Christ has done in us. And everything we do in this life has this aim, to exalt or to magnify Jesus to magnify him. Do you realize that a part of why you exist, the key reason you now exist in Jesus if you're a new creation, if you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior, is to magnify the Lord, is to make known what Jesus has done to you. It's a part of your worship unto him. To magnify him has two parts. The first is visibility. 
If you're magnifying the Lord, you're not hiding whatever it is that you're magnifying. If you're looking to magnify something, you're looking to expand it, you're looking to lift it up, you're looking to make it known. So you're making Jesus visible by praising him, by living your life in such a way that honors and worships him. And the second is there's value attached to what you magnify. You increase its value. How valuable is what Jesus Christ has done in your life? Some of you get so excited when your favorite team has won a a big game. Have you become more excited about what's happening on the television than what's happened to your soul for eternity? Have you become more excited about things that you're seeing on television or on the big screen than than what God has done for you and in you and through you? Do you ever share what he's done with that same joy, that same excitement, that same passion? Not even so someone that doesn't know the Lord would hear, but so that anyone would hear. You could praise the Lord to those that know him as you walk through the doors of church, as you go to work, as you live your life, that you just praise the Lord for what he has done. Am I talking to anyone today? Because you have that hope. You have that anchor. You hold on to who Jesus is and what he has done in your life. To magnify the Lord means that you lift him high. It means you place him above everything else. It means that he has first place in your heart and in your life. And as you lift him higher, as you magnify him, as you lift him up, God's word says, he will draw men unto himself. You're making him known by magnifying him, by making him visible and showing his value. John Piper said this. He said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. He's most glorified in us. Jesus is receiving the most glory in and through our lives when we are the most satisfied in him. And what this means is that for us to truly worship the Lord and to live to worship God the way we see the church that changed the world, it means that we are not satisfied with anything else that this world has to offer. Nothing brings more satisfaction into our heart and in our life than Jesus and what he has done for us and through us. And we can be content in all circumstances because that's something else that Paul says as he's in chains. I have learned the secret to being content in all circumstances. It's that I have Jesus and I don't need anything else as long as I have him. He then goes on to say in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How could you really say that? For many of us, whatever it is that we would fill out this sentence with, to live is whatever. There are things that we are living for. There are things that we are willing to live for that we are allowed, allowed to have first place in our life. There are ambitions that we've been chasing. There are addictions that we've been hiding. There are things that have such a high place in your life that you, they literally rule your life. And you say for yourself, to live is this. And whatever else that you put in that blank, if it is not Jesus Christ, to die is always lost. This is the only way that you could fill in this sentence to live is money, is success, is anything else, is happiness, to die is loss, to die is loss. Every time, but when to live is Christ, to die is gain. Why? Because you gain him. You gain the inheritance that he promises. You gain everything. Jesus said, if anyone wants to save his life, he must lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will take it up. He will have eternal life. It's promised to those to live as Christ. When you live your life to worship God, to make him known, to ultimately glorify him, magnify him through your life, even to lose that life, just as Paul said, I will exalt the Lord in my life or in my death. But one thing is for sure, I'm going to exalt the Lord. I'm going to magnify him. We have brothers and sisters on the other side of the world 
that have given up their lives because of their faith in Jesus Christ. They're an example for us of what it means to truly live their life or die but not stop exalting Jesus Christ, their Lord and their Savior. As Jesus has given us an incredible example, we see what he has done in and through us, but we're reminded of that so often by the examples that we see around us in the world today. And I came across something this Mother's Day that was incredibly moving as I watched it. It's a story of a mother that goes back 16 years now. And this mother went out to Colorado with her three children. And as they made a quick stop, the children got back into the car and something life-changing happened. Something devastating was about to take place. And I want you to hear Joy tell the story for herself. And so please watch this video to hear what happened to this family. We were vacationing in the Colorado mountains and it was our last day there. And I'd promised the children we'd go to the hot springs. And as we came out the cabin, I watched them as they ran in front of me and they all jumped in the front seat of my Suburban. As we're slowly walking towards the car, I noticed that all at once the Suburban is in motion. As we got near the side of the car, I noticed the door was closed. And I remember them looking at me with these scared eyes. There was just no way that none of us were gonna get to it in time. So the last minute, I jumped in front of it. I began to feel it pull me under the car. As it ran over me, all at once the passenger door flew open and my father deployed the brake basically about a yard before it went over the canyon. My father came up to me and he said, um, Joy, Joy, you're gonna be okay. And I said, no, Dad. I said, don't touch me. I said, I know I'm paralyzed. If you didn't catch exactly what happened there, her children got into a car, and the car began to go on its own, moving towards a cliff, a 400-foot cliff. And as they walked up to the car, the doors had locked, and they could not open them. And without even thinking, Joy jumps in front of the SUV, and begins to push it with all her strength, but it's stronger than she is, and it topples over her. And as it runs her over, the bump causes the door to open. And her father is able to come and pull this brake and stop them just feet before going over a cliff to their sudden death. It's such an example of what someone would be willing to do to save the lives of her children, the incredible measures that she was willing to go through to secure life. She knew what she was living for because she knew what she was willing to die for. And she realized if it meant saving her children, she was willing to even lose her own life in that moment at that time. And it's now been 16 years. And as they're filming this video, there's something you had no idea of. She had no idea that all of her children were there. And in the middle of her interview, that they would come in and talk to her. And so I want you to see the, re the end of this video. And as we're showing this, I'm going to invite the worship team to come. But watch the response of her children and joy as they have this moment together. Mom, running. Mom. Oh, my God. Oh, no. Surprise. This is happy tears. <laughs> 
something I want to read to you just to show you how much we love you. Dear Mom, it's been 15 years since the day I realized something amazing. I have a superhero for a mom. Even though it's a story we both know so well, here's a version I remember as a five-year-old on that day in 1999 in Pagosa Springs, Colorado. On the way, I was disappointed to learn that we had to make a pit stop. What happened there never left our lives. Our suburban knocked out of gear and started rolling towards the cliff. I was young, but I knew fear. My first instinct was to look wildly for you, our protector. I remember the look on your face. It wasn't fear, it was stone cold determination. Without you, there wouldn't have been a bump to cause one of the doors to swing open. Without you, I wouldn't be sitting here today. Without you, I wouldn't believe in superheroes. Yes, you are paralyzed from the waist down and life gets tough at times, but you know, mom, none of it ever stops you. No, you can't run or walk, though you sure can't fly. I want your passion that leads you to keep fighting and hoping and living and loving. I secretly know that you would love to go back in time to walk, run, dance, and jump for just one more day. I know you must think about it and dream about it, but I know that you wouldn't trade it for the world because we are alive and with you. And how many people can say that the last time they ran, they saved three lives? That line, the last time she ran, she saved three lives. In that moment in time, she knew what her priorities were and she knew how she was going to live her life. She knew in a moment exactly how she would respond and what it would mean. But I think what means so much to reflect on is to see her children look back and to realize what it means to experience their life being saved and the joy that fills their heart, and the way they respond to that, the way they give worth to that, the way they share that. You might say, you know what, that didn't happen to me. I, 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 I've never experienced something like that. Here's what you need to know. If you're in Jesus Christ today, you experienced that. Because you and I, we were plummeting towards our death. We were on a crash course for destruction. And there was one that came, the only one that could. Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, laid down his life in front of us. He was the only way to save us from plummeting to certain death. And because of his death, because of his resurrection today, we have been saved. And in the same way, in the same way that, that we can see and can understand what it means to really see a life saved here on this earth, we have to be exponentially more excited, more thankful, more grateful eternally for what Jesus Christ has done in us and through us and for us. That's what it means to worship him with our lives is now we live our lives to magnify the Lord at all times, with everything that we are, realizing that we will glorify him in our life or even in our death, but all of our days will live to glorify the Lord. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me today? And as we have understood another attribute of what it means to be the church that changed the world, as a church that lives to worship God, I'm going to pray for you that God would bless you this Mother's Day with the ability to go everywhere that you go knowing full well what he's done in you is greater than anything that can happen to you. 
knowing that the storms that are around you are not greater than the God that was, is within you. And that today, no matter where you are, no matter what you've been through, God puts a song in your heart, and it's a song of the redeemed, a song of the saved, those who have been rescued, those who have been changed, those who have been transformed. And today, if you just bow your heads and close your eyes with me, if there's anyone here that you don't have a relationship with God, you know your heart is not right with him, I want you to say this prayer from the bottom of your heart, and I want you to ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and your Savior. You're the only one that knows it today, whether you're right with him or not. He sees your heart. He sees your life. And today, if you're ready to turn your heart back to Jesus, repeat these words from the bottom of your heart. Lord Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of my sins that have separated me from you. I believe that you came and that you died for me. I believe that you rose on the third day to give me life. Thank you for your forgiveness. And I commit to follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the power of your resurrection. I thank you for the work you've done in these lives. I pray right now, Lord God, that they would experience the newness of life. Lord, I pray that they would walk with you all the days of their life. I pray, Lord God, that you would give them the blessings of your promises. And Lord, today would be a first day that they begin to live to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.